what it looks like when it's true resilience is that it is constantly involved in the project of transforming relationships of power. Otherwise, you're cementing the systems of power as they exist right now, and it will be resilient for those who are in power and not for others. So resilience requires a constant transformation of relationships of power. Welcome to a special SheEO.World podcast series, Money and Power, with Joy Anderson, founder of the Criterion Institute, and Vicki Saunders, founder of SheEO. Systems and patterns of power and money are sometimes hard to see. Joy and Vicki identify the systems that make up this world and the money and power dynamics within them so that we can better understand how to transform our world. Hello, we are here today for a conversation around resilience. We are hearing this word everywhere we go. And I'm wondering, Joy, if there's a resilience tax for women. What happens around resilience in women, resilience and non, everybody who's not the quote unquote norm <laughs> on which everything is based? Wow, a resilience tax. I've been thinking a lot about resilience recently. So we can take this from a bunch of different ways. What do you mean by resilience tax? I have been a lot on a lot of these uh, indigenous calls. We were working really closely with the indigenous communities and we had these calls on the weekend. I've heard them talk about how, yes, we are resilient because we've had to be because we never have resources and we're always the last on the list to get supported. And then people go, oh, well, you're so resilient. You keep surviving and therefore we don't need to worry about you in a way. So I wonder if there's a tax is the phrase that just sort of came up for me around this. I think that's a, that's a really interesting way to frame it. I was Googling resilience last night because I haven't actually thought about this word for very long, but I remember it got really popular with a program that Rockefeller was doing about like resilient cities. Mm. And I think that was part of, I don't know, I do, I do appreciate many things that Rockefeller has gotten done in the world, Rockefeller Foundation, but they do know their own power and their ability to sort of define terms, right? They were the ones who took everybody to a villa in Italy and said, let's come up with the term impact investing because we need a better term, right? So there's a kind of, I don't know, I have a reasonable amount of resistance to that. They were working on these resilient cities thing, which has still been their obsession. And then resilience became really popular in climate, this sort of who's resilient to climate change, right? But for me, resilience is fundamentally about privilege. People are resilient in the face of hardship because they have to be. They don't have any other choice. They don't have any other choice, absolutely. But somehow it becomes this cool thing. I don't know. There's something about this that's pissing me off and I'm trying to figure (laughs) out what it is. I was doing this research on gender resilience and vulnerability because vulnerability is the opposite, according to academics, of resilience, right? Oh, really? Yeah. So vulnerability, okay, here's an actual quote from some random thing in the internet. Vulnerability has been defined as the degree to which a system or part of it may react adversely during the occurrence of a hazardous event. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. 
I see it. The concept of vulnerability implies a measure of risk associated with the physical, social, economic aspects and implications resulting from a system's ability to cope with the resulting event. Well, that's so fascinating, right? Because the increasingly, we are seeking at a human level anyway, more vulnerable leadership. That's one of the things, oh, you're so vulnerable as a leader. People really resonate with that. And then from a system perspective, you're like, whoa, that's a vulnerable system. We're in trouble. Like you can actually be resistant to things. That's interesting. Somebody was writing a blog for me and I, um, as a draft, not that that never happens. We all write our stuff independently. (laughs) Somebody was doing the first draft of a blog and they described women as vulnerable to gender-based violence. Right. And I was like, oh, F that. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. And, and that this kind of sense of like that the problem is that women are vulnerable versus the problem is that whoever is the abuser is abusing. Is abusing. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. Well, we see this all the time, right? Like we are the problem to fix. Oh, you're not taking enough risks versus how about the system is taking too many risks? Every single piece of it is like, women are wrong in this equation. It's genius marketing, I have to say. And yet, back to your tax, there is this sense of people who have been required to be resilient to overcome objective vulnerability. There's something about this, you're vulnerable to an attack, but resilience is whether or not you bounce back from that. So maybe they're not actually opposites. Maybe they're just paired with each other right? That sort of there's this, are you vulnerable to a hardship? And then that event, that hardship happens. And the question is, how do you bounce back? Somebody in, in one of these articles that I was reading about resilience said, well, you're more resilient if you have access to capital. <laughs> the answer to everything. <laughs> no, and I kept thinking, am I just being weird? I yeah. actually think Right now, I believe in the midst of this effed up situation, that one of the things that's happening is that entrepreneurs, let's just just go to that in particular. So entrepreneurs who have taken lots of outside capital in the midst of the pandemic, who are on a growth path and have taken a lot of outside capital, they are more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And we are responding to that vulnerability by giving them more capital to make sure that we can prop up the growth that we thought was a good idea. A lot of the COVID funds that are being announced right now, well, they <laughs> range in how bad they are. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen a whole lot that I actually love. Yeah, they're doubling down on the old system, it feels like to me. But on what we did before. 100%. They're not even doubling down on the old system. They are doubling down on their particular bets that they made in the previous system, right? So if I funded a bunch of companies, now there is a pandemic, I am raising a debt fund to be able to restructure the company that I put equity in to make sure that it can survive. And somewhere in that, that is about propping up the growth that we have worshipped for so bloody long. Fundamentally, that is like one of the big underlying pieces, right? Like 
resilient to what, in what way, like what's the comparable inside what system, right? And I think until we actually address that key issue, which is our economic system no longer works for the time we're in, everything else is just like this argument on top of, you know, I love my friend has this amazing phrase of whipped cream on top of garbage, which I just love all the time. It's like, because it's just so visual to me, but it's that kind of thing, right? Like underneath it, we have this rotten thing going on and then we kind of dress it up to think, oh, it's not really seen that. But what's happening right now is the curtains have been pulled back. The unveiling Mm -hmm. of what is actually happening underneath, people can see for the first time, which is quite extraordinary. I was just reading through Twitter and just people are talking about new phrases for jobs. Are you a job keeper? Are you a job seeker? And then they're like, no, they're like job fakers. And like people are now noticing the kind of jobs that are out there and governments are trying to save jobs, quote unquote, as opposed to people. And the language that we're using around it is starting to, I would say, unveil the vulnerabilities in the system. We have, just for my language for a sec, we have a broken system, but hey, you're being really resilient by staying alive. You know, like, so this resilience is in reflection of what? I don't know. I, I find it quite confusing because I, I feel like it doesn't get you to speak about the stuff that really matters. Where did you want to go with resilience? Like, what's the, the piece that got you... Hmm sparked on this? Part of what got me sparked on this, we were trying to frame that one thing that was needed right now is to invest in resilience instead of in growth. And I was pairing those as distinct. The more I look at this, the more that feels like that's maybe not the right frame, but to play it out for a second, right? So if a lot of the COVID funds that are going out right now are essentially protecting the growth that we've vaguely worshipped for a long time, right? That the only company that is investable, the only reason to engage in finance, the only reason to, to do all of this financial stuff is if somebody can articulate a massive growth plan that's going to whatever. All of a sudden now we're at a time where pretty much all of a sudden, but to your whipped cream on trash thing, it has been for a long time that that growth was not supported. And a lot of it was in name only. The right narrative, the right thing to say is that you want to grow because that's what you're supposed to do. You know, there are so many parts of impact investing and sort of sustainable finance that were about growing the good thing, not just being a good thing. Right? Mm-hmm. Not honoring that there are parts of the economy that are more whole, more effective than others, and let's actually invest to preserve those. So I was thinking, all right, let's figure out how do we actually talk about a gender lens right now? And is this a moment to say growth for growth's sake is maybe not needed? what we need to think about instead is resilience. But then I'm looking at all of this and basically resilience is being framed as the ability of a system to be resilient, to be able to respond to vaguely a hardship or attack. Like something happens to the system, can the system bounce back? But if the system is growth, then we're basically in a system right now where we're in a moment where this sort of system of growth, this economic story that what we invest in is growth, we're basically just figuring out how do we become resilient and keep our growth. 
Yeah. I mean, I feel like what I hear underneath that is how do we prop this up some more, right? That's what I hear. I mean, like, how do we keep people resilient on the model that we've got right now? And I'm like, actually, isn't the most amazing thing to be super vulnerable right now and go, this isn't working? Isn't that the resilient response? The resilient response is to actually port over to another approach to remove those core elements that don't work. Like if you're really resilient right now, perhaps you're rethinking your business to be more of an essential service going forward that's working on critical issues of our time versus just trying to create something that makes money that isn't systemically needed. Like maybe that's a basis of resilience because if you're only really measuring resilience based on growth and making more money, that's not a sufficient definition anymore, given the state that we're in with climate change, with all the other challenges we're facing. Yeah, you're defining resilience as the ability for the system to sustain itself, and the point of the system is growth, then the point of resilience is to maintain a system of growth. Exactly. So, and I'm also just witnessing the conversation we're having right now going, isn't this the ultimate privilege, the two of us sitting here at eight o'clock in the morning talking about (laughs) resilience and systems around these pieces? Like, it's just, it's insane. Because I keep thinking about like food on the table, taking care of my family, work that I want to do that's safe and supportive. And the system out there isn't providing the conditions for me to actually get that in a way that serves humanity, really. And we look at that and go, oh, here's, so what's the solution to that? Let's give more money per hour to somebody for a fairly unsafe job to deliver these services to people who want to stay safe at home. I mean, that's what we're doing in Canada, five bucks more an hour. For people who are working in... Frontline workers. I mean, so we're just like increasing the minimum wage aptly. Grocery store workers as well? Everybody is making minimum wage. Yeah. Wow. So we're increasing that, but still it's like, it's a, I don't know, it's a money solution to a situation that feels to me like it just needs to rethink. So what would you do instead? I don't know if it's an either or right at the moment, Mm -hmm. but I think the end to all of this is to really start looking at food security in different ways, to start looking at rooftop gardens, to start educating people about how to garden in plots of land, community gardens, to provide this as an essential service inside cities that you can actually get a plot of land and go learn how to grow your own food. All kinds of interesting things like this that are investing in more food security. I would spend a bit, like not that you, of course you have to take care of people at the moment, but the transition to a new economy would be investing in that instead of more oil sands or climate harming investments. And maybe that comes around too. Like right now it's just, okay, holy cow, 50% of businesses are going to fail right now. So let's quickly get to some kind of basic income, phase Mm -hmm. one, phase two, start investing in things that get us to a safer future. We don't have to debate rooftop gardens, but on some level, they don't necessarily, while they're useful for the individual, they don't actually create a more resilient system, right? They ensure that individual families can be more resilient, but it's not a more resilient food system because I have a rooftop garden. Because that, that assumes that everybody can farm, right? That, that everybody has a, enough time in their day to be able to produce their own food. Well, and so part of this thing is community-based version of that. Like 
It doesn't okay. have to be just individual, right? But there's this connected. I think one of the things that we haven't really explored much because it just is so different than our current sort of top-down hierarchical individual structures is this distributed network approach. Someone in my neighborhood could feed this whole street with a rooftop garden. And how does that start to get connected to other rooftop gardens? And wow, they're growing X over there or Y over there. So we've, we've been playing with this for the last week with CEO. We started a food collective and starting to look at what does some of, what do we have within our community already that could start to be connected in? And how then can we share that across? Because we have chefs whose restaurants have closed, who have capacity in their kitchens. We have people who are out of work who could contribute towards this. We have people who have moved out of the city to farms who have land. Like you start to look at what are all the assets you have and then how might we come together to create something that's needed across all of these. It's, you know, building that connective tissue. But to kind of come back to the resilience piece, like I, I don't know, I go to survival when I think of resilience. Can you survive through a tough time? But again, like, are we going to come out of this when, when I think like, will we come out of this more resilient? Yeah. People will understand that they can get through a crisis. But now I think one of the cool things that's happening is people are going, do I want to be in this system? Starting to see people want to move, if they can, out of the city. Been looking at this article, and I've just been stuck on this idea of the difference between hard resilience and soft resilience. Not to go too wonky on this, but Mm -hmm. so if hard resilience, if you Google the concept of vulnerability and resilience, hard resilience is the direct strength of structures or institutions when placed under pressure. And in a disaster, resilience is treated as the inverse of fragility. So maybe thinking about it as the opposite of fragile versus the opposite of vulnerable. At some level, we have relatively fragile systems, but they're only fragile for some people, right? The system will continue. Well, actually, that makes the system relatively adaptive, right? So this soft resilience is the ability of systems to absorb and recover without fundamental changes. So it's basically like, can I take in the impact and I might be hit by it, but I would have to shift in response. This is the, the place where it said, thus people with direct access to capital tools and equipment and able-bodied members are the one most resilient when disaster strikes. This might just be too stupidly abstract. And maybe that's the problem with resilience because it's yeah. basically measuring the ability of a system to respond, but then it gets reframed by whether or not the members, the participants right. in that yeah. system are actually able to respond. And maybe this is the fundamental problem, right? So we're thinking about businesses as resilient, but it's not the individual actor that even has a choice to be like, We don't because we're in that system. Exactly. So we talk about it at an abstract level and then we can only really measure it down at the concrete level. (laughs) So how does that work? Yeah. Maybe that's the problem with this because then we're saying that individuals are resilient and they bounce back. But of course, people who have always been hit are the ones who learn how to bounce back. The, The sort of impact of a trauma And if I was raised in a family in which I was regularly abused, I learned a certain kind of resilience within that, but I I really just learned how to survive. Maybe isn't the thing that should be valued. I mean, this is the, you know, I go on these rants all the time around gender because, and maybe this is just a useful conversation because I'm maybe thinking this whole idea of resilience is a bad path. 
So there's this story you know, all the time that's quoted that women, when you invest in women, women reinvest in their communities and they'll spend on their families versus spending on, on themselves and all these kinds of stories that are kind of idealized crap. Personally, I think that the reason often that women reinvest in their communities when given capital. So if I, I live in a village and I create a small farm, I spend the money from that small farm in my community, in part because I don't have freedom of travel. It's the limitations, it's the constraints around gender roles that often reinforce what are even our options in the broader scheme of things. So a lot of the things we women are in general, both thought to be and exhibit less corrupt behavior, right? So women are less corrupt, not mm -hmm. because they're, you know, not, not defined by any physical, <laughs> physical characteristic, but women are less corrupt because they don't benefit from corruption. Right. So they don't have access to the benefits of corruption. Right. If you're not able to be in the back rooms cutting the deal, then you don't actually you don't have an incentive to be corrupt because right. there is actually a privilege to corruption that you can participate in a corrupt system. Women often rock corruption if we're given access to it. Where I went with that was a kind of the, the moments when when the behavior is actually what our choices are, what we are allowed to do every day, the realm of choices that are available to us are limited by where we sit within the world. They're limited by bias. They're limited by other people's privilege. And therefore, we only have certain choices. And therefore, we make certain choices within that constraint, right? Women are often more collaborative because they have had to be to survive not because we are intrinsically more collaborative. And so then we're expected to be collaborative because we're women versus the, maybe I wouldn't actually wanna be collaborative if I could rock that path of, you know, sort of individualist yeah. success. Right. And then people are always surprised, but, but women didn't stay collaborative and nice and gentle and investing in their own communities as soon as you give them power. It's like, well, of course they didn't. Why would they have to? The requirement to be resilient in the context of a system that isn't designed to work for you and in a system where when disaster hits, you are always hit hardest. So do you think when you're talking to these different foundations and governments who are thinking at the systems level around this, do they believe that we're resilient right now? Are we exhibiting resilience in different countries? Like, is there a resilience index across different countries? Or where is this term going? And is this a desired outcome from our existing funding approaches? It is in climate change, right? It so is in, in, change. in yeah. the climate world, resilience yeah. is an extraordinarily positive term sort of the environmental resilience, building resilient cities, basically recognizing that climate change is continuing to happen. Are we resilient to the disasters, the changes that are coming as a result of that? What is shocking to me in some of that, 
not often talking about the human beings within it. I was just going right. to say, like, all these concepts are, yeah, at a different kind of level. Like, what is a resilient city? <laughs> on, right. Like, it's, it's, measured, it's actually, measured on how humans live in the resilient city, right? Right. It seems to, in, in part, be measured by do the buildings stay standing when an earthquake hits, at which point it's a resilient city because it stays standing. It huh. isn't necessarily measured by... A quality of life index for individuals after that or anything like that. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Or is it who survives that, right? Because my fear is that we're investing in resilience for some and not for others. Yeah. I mean, who's making the rules? So, but what in the middle of this, because this is my obsession right now, what in the middle of this moment can we claim, reframe, shift the narrative around? Because in the midst of disruption, we should be able to reframe some things. We should be able to push through and say, here's another way to look at this. What terrifies me to no end is that we are essentially assuming that a portion of the population is expendable within this. And what we really need to do is rebuild an economy to make sure it protects the few. And it's not that I don't know that that happens. It's just some parts of it seem more obscene now than they've ever seemed before. Oh, I think so. And I think that's part of it. I mean, as I witness what we're talking about in the news, where we're going, who's making the rules for what's next. Like, I think there's been more consultation. It feels like there's been more consultation with government in some element. Well, in Canada, I'll speak in Canada's mm -hmm. perspective. There's a lot more consultation going on with the sort of public, I would say. But I don't know that we're like totally questioning the rules that we have and this obsession with growth that we were talking about earlier, to your point, like what matters? Growth, tech, unicorns, none of that's gone away. Like that still feels very, very similar versus even though we're recognizing right in front of us, like small businesses, which are X percent of the population and 90 something percent of the economy everywhere are failing madly. I just don't think we're in enough pain yet to actually really get what's going on. We're still sort of sitting up above this and we don't really understand how much of an impact this is going to have. Like I have been out in the country for two months. I'm now back in the city. And like, what's it going to look like when you walk down the streets in the city? Three quarters of the businesses are closed. What does that start to do to our communities, to our neighborhoods? What's happened to those individuals and their families? Can we say that they're resilient because they pivot to something else? Or like, I don't know. There's a good amount. I mean, we've been looking a little bit at people pivoting to a more informal economy. A friend of mine works with a bunch of social entrepreneurs in, in Australia and was kind of <laughs> working to support folks who were pivoting to be able to run an alcohol distribution company because that was what they had trucks for. I, I suppose it's hard to call a, a, sorry, an alcohol distribution company a socially, exactly. <laughs> sort of yeah. a socially beneficial company. That's a good thing? What? Yeah. Maybe they're doing it well and paying their workers well. Like, I don't know. <laughs> My friend was really disappointed that she had, you know, helped build this company. At some levels, like, okay, and that's what the person needed to do. I, I feel fundamentally ill-equipped to judge that pivot. I do think there is, the more rigid a system is, 
it is often more vulnerable or rather it's more fragile maybe, right? Because the disruption that a large concrete building has when it takes a hit is different than what a small building made out of more flexible fibers is, right? That's the kind of metaphor that I think about all the time, right? So a small service business is in many ways more resilient because it can get started again, right? It can open up again without necessarily needing access to capital. Access to capital would help, but our sort of obsession with that good businesses have taken in outside capital because they've shown that they want to grow and they're ambitious, at some level, they are in this moment more fragile because they have to keep that going and they've taken on those risks. Trying to think about where is the, maybe it's like, fuck resilience. Maybe we just want to find places that are durable and strong and redefine what that actually looks like. Well, I mean, this is fun where my brain just kind of went on this too, because I, what could be being shown to us right now by what we're going through? We seem to not be paying attention to what our reality actually is. And I'm just like, speak from an economy thing for a moment, where in the US, 90% of your economy is small and medium-sized business. In Canada, it's 99 or 98%. Because of that, and what you just said, we should come out of this better because we are so, like we really are small. Most of the investment, most of the policies are going towards big. And if that stuff fails, that's probably a good thing over time because we're putting a ton of resources into that. And if we could reboot those resources towards this place where we're smaller, more connected, more able to pivot, then we should come out of this better. How are we going to understand that betting it all on red is not a good thing? What is the universe going to provide to us as an experience to realize that that is not a good use of capital? If we were ever in it, we're in it now that example, right? We've bet it all on this complete growth, a certain sector. Two years from now, we're probably going to see the result of that. It's not going to be pretty. And what will be left standing? And that will be a message and an opportunity to see it. Some of us are in it right now and can see it. We're feeling we can see it already. Others, we're going to have to wait until the dust settles. Yes. The thing I struggle with is on a daily basis, we're being asked, what should we invest in instead? And what do you say? I don't know. Um, (laughs) That's what I'm trying to figure out through this, right? Is there a way to honor the people who have learned how to be resilient and give them the resources or channel resources to them in such a way that it's not so fucking hard next time? Instead of a tax, why isn't there a reward? Right. If you are resilient, if you've built a company that can survive, shouldn't there be a measure of a reward with that? Not that you had a massive, ambitious growth plan. You took in millions and millions of dollars of outside capital and were spending it hand over fist. And now, lo and behold, your speed is not going to keep up with the times. And we're rewarding them by giving them more capital to make sure they can continue at that same pace or at least pause for a year and start up again. How do we actually appropriately value 
the parts of our economy that are resilient in part because they've had to be and they didn't have a choice. And people who experience privilege, people who are in systems of power, that makes no fucking sense to them because they're placing bets on bread, as you said, because they can. And they're sitting in a certain place saying, I bet red today, as opposed to, I'm going to figure out how to survive. Yeah, well, and I think there's, a, there's just a lack of recognition on, it's very simple. I think when you look at it, you're putting all this money into something so that you can have growth. But then you look at, okay, for what? To the benefit of whom? As to the benefit of the 17 people who are the original investors in that thing, who line their pockets and it doesn't trickle down. Like that whole neoliberal thing is gone. And so if you ask the question underneath that, and what will happen as a result of that? It never creates more connective tissue and stronger communities. It just doesn't. But no one's asking the question at the third level, right? They're just going, oh yeah, that's a thing. Let's put money into that because it'll grow. Okay, but what's going to happen with that money? Oh, the five people are going to have more wealth than they already do that have more money than half the planet. This is the moment where, call it whatever you want. I know a universal basic income freaks out so many people. Call it a crisis income of the moment, whatever it is. But there's so much data to show that this is a better investment than paying on the other side of the failure, right? The healthcare costs, the mental health challenges that we face, the violence in our communities, et cetera. Getting people stabilized on a basic income so they can use their gifts to contribute in ways that they don't have to like always be making money for and doing jobs that they don't really want to do, that they're not really great at. And then having three of those jobs and then being stressed and not being with your family, right? If we can get people stabilized on a basic income, to me, this is a real huge opportunity to then sit back and go, okay, if I can actually feed my family, now what would I do with the rest of my time? And I don't believe people would go on drinking binges and be more violent. Uh, It's just, there's so much to show that we actually then would go and contribute our gifts. But that's like scary for people who like to control things. You have to trust people to do the right thing. This is the second time Criterion had, my cute little organization, had had ambitious growth goals in the year before a recession. So... (laughs) We were massively scaling in 2008, uh, 2007 had actually taken in delightfully philanthropic capital from Rockefeller Foundation back to (laughs) my my long time relationship with Rockefeller Foundation to be able to scale. And then this last summer, as you well know, we were writing a strategic plan and looked at the strategic plan and said, well, to be able to accomplish this plan, we need to grow. And as been reflecting recently, we have a board retreat coming up. I am aware that for so many of us running smallish, you know, whatever size organization, it's hard, right? And and so it looks like if I got bigger, it would be less hard. I will say from this fall, getting bigger meant more hard. We often have that fallacy. So one of the things I've been thinking about, and and we're going to have a retreat about it, is what would it look like to feel more abundant? Mm, That experience of abundance and what would that look like? And almost everything that we came to was what you were talking about before, about the roof gardens, more connected, that we felt like we had enough. And because we had enough, we could play with others, that we had 
strong enough partners. We had these amazing volunteers that have shown up in the midst of this. I think we have like 25 volunteers right now. It's insane. But in some ways, the ability to engage with volunteers requires a perception of abundance because otherwise you're like, oh my God, I have to get my work done. How can I possibly? Yeah. Versus, right, the way this work will be more, the way that we will get to greater impact is not by being bigger ourselves, but having enough abundance to be able to engage more effectively within the world. Because if you live in a place of scarcity, if that's your experience, it's just hard, right? You're, you're in totally. a place where you're feeling fragile and always as if it's not enough. And, and that, that sort of walking the line of figuring out what makes us less fragile, more durable, but in that not protective, but more open. And I think the answer to all of that comes back to the original podcast we did, which is get in relationship with each other get out of isolation. The second you start to do that, you start to realize, you start to move along that spectrum from scarcity to abundance. The more you're in relationship, if you're isolated and and thinking from an individual perspective of my to-do list versus the larger outcome that people can be involved in, it's just night and day. And we've been working on this with our team for the last couple of years. I mean, I grew up in a farming family in a tiny community where everybody contributed. And so to me, when you need to get something done, you just use the structure that I, was, I grew up with, which is like the work party. <laughs> and everybody comes out to the work party, right? When I was a little kid, my mom would make a giant list. She was the goddess of lists of all these things that need to be done. A barn needs to be built, just, you know, a porch over here, a garden needs to be dug. And they'd have a party. And they'd invite all their friends from the city out. And then we'd have a pig roast uh, at the end of the day. And then we'd all play together. But everyone sweated and contributed. And it was fun. Whereas in the current, like non-farming city, individual, isolated reality, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to like ask my friends to do work. That's not fun. I'm like, oh my God, it's the most fun thing ever to co-create something as a team. It's the opposite of what we're used to right now. Okay. So maybe in the end, this has helped me answer my question. Thank you so much, Vicki. Then what we want from resilience, what we want resilience to be what it looks like when it's true resilience is that it is constantly involved in the project of transforming relationships of power. Yum! Da 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 da! We got there. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you're cementing the systems of power as they exist right now, and it will be resilient for those who are in power and not for others. So resilience requires a constant transformation of relationships of power. There we go. Like, hello. This is like a 14-second podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) Done. (laughs) This is challenging, right? It's hard to be as 45 minutes. We apologize. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, everyone, for listening through this. But that's part of the thing, right? Like, there's you have to get underneath this layer by layer. There's so much fog in front of us. But yeah, that's cool. All right. Thank you for listening to the Money and Power series on the Shio.world podcast with Vicki Saunders and Joy Anderson. 
If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. To learn more, go to sheo.world and criterioninstitute.org.